So good afternoon and welcome to uh, Cyber Risk Wednesday for uh, February. Um, today we're going to be having a discussion about uh, uh, connected healthcare, um, cybersecurity, cyber safety of medical devices. Uh, if you were expecting uh, Jay Healy, uh, I, I, I apologize. My facial hair is not nearly as cool as his is. Um, but I am the new deputy director of the Cyber Statecraft Initiative for uh, the Atlantic Council. Um, uh, I'm, I've been in the role about a month now, uh, getting my feet under me, uh, and wanted to talk a little bit about um, this topic because it's something very, uh, very near and dear to me. I spent the first three years of my career uh, in a healthcare role um, as a security analyst at a healthcare uh, system. And in doing so, I really got to uh, understand the unique challenges that the healthcare environment has that typical corporate IT infrastructure doesn't have. Uh, so I kind of cut my teeth on uh, security of medical devices, security of electronic health record systems. Uh, and I've really um, been able to stick with that for quite a while uh, throughout my career. Um, I've spent about a decade in the technical information security community uh, before coming over to the policy side now with the Atlantic Council. Um, and so uh, uh, the past couple of years, I've worked with an initiative called I Am the Cavalry. Uh, and we are a global grassroots organization focused on the intersection of cybersecurity uh, and uh, public safety. That uh, drew me into some of the uh, public policy discussions uh, over time, pretty quickly realized that um, if we wanted to change anything, uh, it really starts at the top, starts at some of the ch central points uh, where we can get uh, the most impact the quickest um, with the biggest distribution. Uh, so uh, we started uh, about three years ago, um, and our critical insight was that our dependence on connected technology was growing faster than our ability to secure that technology. So when it comes to things like medical devices and automobiles and Internet of Things, um, we're transplanting uh, connected technology into these devices, uh, but without uh, providing an additional type of security or changing our paradigms to fit the unique challenges of those uh, connected technologies uh, underlying the, the physical devices. So when you have things like um, patient care as one of your primary goals, it's a very different equation than if you're looking at data security or data privacy as your primary goal. The outcomes you're seeking are different. Uh, the challenges you have are different. Uh, the composition of the devices are very different. So it really has to be a different approach. Uh, and so now coming into the Atlantic Council, um, we're going to be uh, pointed a little bit more towards that, hoping to change some of the discussion in DC from uh, what's traditionally been more of a cyber war and privacy focus over to some of the other things that matter just as much. Um, so uh, one of the interesting things that we've seen in, in the cyber safety discussion uh, that we've had over the past couple of years is the potential impact that a crisis of confidence in these types of connected devices could have. Um, if you think about it, uh, if you go into a scenario where consumers no longer trust a medical device or uh, new features in an automotive uh, uh, safety framework, for instance, then they will stop buying those devices. Obviously, that's a pretty big critical hit on the economy, potentially. Uh, with automotive and with medical, uh, each being about a double-digit part of uh, the U.S. economy. Um, but beyond that, uh, there's risk to our public health system. There's risk to 
human life at a massive scale. Um, in the automotive industry over the past 60 years, they've managed to save hundreds of thousands of lives through innovative safety technologies. If consumers now no longer rely on those technologies uh, and the best available capabilities, then there's a real toll in human life. Uh, the same thing in the public health sector. If uh, patients uh, willingly deny themselves the best possible medical treatment out of fear of security vulnerabilities and security risks, then that does a disservice to the great gains we've made over the past hundred years in the healthcare arena. So these are not just issues of uh, small-scale one-off um, problems that we're having. They are, in fact, wider, more, more uh, broad issues. Uh, and you can even link this to national security. If we can't trust that the devices that we use will be resilient against some type of a cyber attack, whether it's a nation state level adversary or a sub-state adversary, then we lose confidence in our other policy-based mechanisms to effectively govern um, cyber norms uh, across the globe. Um, on that topic, uh, recently there have been some pretty high-profile headlines in the newspapers and uh, magazines about cybersecurity in the healthcare environment uh, and privacy, safety, all rolling into these things. Um, where you can trace some of the lineage of this back uh, years and years to people like Jay Radcliffe, late Barnaby Jack, hacking insulin pumps. Uh, last year and two years ago, Billy Rios hacking infusion pumps, uh, healthcare infusion pumps. Uh, and then recently, there was a, a very big headline that uh, a medical facility um, had the patient record system held hijack or held ransom um, for, I think the final total ended up being about $17,000. Uh, the healthcare system was essentially taken offline. They were operating purely on the downtime procedures that they have, um, which again, that, that goes to undermine the public trust that we have in our healthcare system, as well as potentially being an impediment to patient safety, maybe uh, bringing some harm. Um, so in that area, uh, there's been a lot of bad news, but I think there's also been a lot of really good news. Uh, there are a lot of things that are going right and that, we're, that show we're going in the right direction. Uh, one of those things is recently the FDA released draft guidance for their post-market surveillance function of connected medical devices. Uh, and that's a, a fairly extensive, fairly detailed document outlining uh, their expectations of medical device vendors and giving them an economic incentive, uh, not just uh, a punitive measure. In other words, a carrot, not a stick. And that's something that I think we're seeing a, a lot more of in the healthcare community, uh, being able to bring a, in those economic incentives. Um, if you look at some of the things that the Mayo Clinic, among others, has done uh, to look at building security into their buying decisions so that they can make smarter decisions to preserve patient safety as well as privacy. Uh, these are all positive results that have come out recently that we've been hearing about. Um, and also, uh, self-servingly, uh, I and the Cavalry published a uh, Hippocratic Oath for Connected Medical Devices in mid-January, calling on the entire community to come together and find their role in delivering safe and effective treatments uh, to patients whether you're a security researcher, whether you're a physician, whether you're a patient in some cases. What is your role? How do you uphold this uh, symbolic spirit uh, to, to act in the best interest of the patient? And this is um, 
kind of falling into a broader trend that we're seeing across the security research community, uh, where we formerly were very, very proud to label ourselves hackers. Uh, now some of us have styled us more as security researchers. Um, the change is a willingness to kind of engage in a different level, to change the dialogue, to change the perception of what security researchers can do for a positive uh, outcome. So no longer being seen and perceived as only agents of chaos, now really coming in and trying to style ourselves as willing allies. Uh, that's always been a part of the hacker ethos, uh, to find problems and get them fixed. But now we're, we're willingly conforming a little bit more to some of the existing uh, inf infrastructures and institutions and expectations that exist in the broader world. Uh, you know, we think we have the power to change the world, and now we're uh, trying to do that. Um, and I think that there are a few groups that have been at the forefront of adopting uh, and allowing in this new uh, spirit of, of the hacker ethos or uh, of the security researchers. The FDA is one of those organizations. Uh, if you look at the post-market guidance that they released, um, they specifically call out a role for reporting uh, security vulnerabilities uh, by security researchers and handling those internally at medical device makers, for instance. Um, also, some of the medical device makers themselves. I really like to, to promote Philips and Draeger. They have a coordinated disclosure program uh, encouraging security researchers to report vulnerabilities in good faith, promising to act on those vulnerabilities to make sure that patient safety is not compromised as a result of a cybersecurity uh, incident. Um, and then uh, we also have uh, healthcare providers such as Mayo Clinic who invite cybersecurity researchers to be a part of their decision-making process, uh, whether it's uh, looking at some of the things that could be done with a medical device if an adversary or an accident were to try and, and compromise that or to have some impact or whatever the case may be. Um, so to that end, today we have a very good panel uh, of a couple of other folks who are going to join me here on stage. Uh, the first one is from the FDA. Uh, her name is Dr. Suzanne Schwartz. She, is, she has a very long title, but it's very impressive. The Associate Director for Science and Strategic Partnerships in the Office of the Center Director at the Center for De Devices and Radiological Health. She's both a physician, uh, a medical doctor, and an MBA. Uh, and we also have Mara Tam, who is the Director of Public Policy at HackerOne. Um, and uh, Mara and I actually have been friends on Twitter for quite a while, but uh, we ended up meeting um, at the White House uh, in real life as our first uh, real life encounter. Um, so I'll invite both of them to come up and join me on stage and we'll have uh, first a moderated panel discussion for the next 30 to 40 minutes and then we'll open the floor to questions uh, and anybody can jump in and, and we'll answer your questions. So Suzanne, Mara? So why don't we start off, Suzanne, with you, and maybe you could just give us a little bit of your perspective and try and capture your uh, point of view on some of these medical device cyber safety questions that we're looking at and uh, where you and or the FDA stand. 
Sure. Uh, so first of all, thank you for having me here. It's always a pleasure to be able to speak to different audiences on the work that FDA is doing on this front. It, this has been really very much a journey, uh, very much an evolving process just by virtue of FDA and the Center for Devices and Radiological Health getting to know a lot of the different concerns and characteristics of really the medical device ecosystem as it applies to cybersecurity. And in doing so, taking that deep dive, also getting a sense as to what level of awareness all of our stakeholders have to these issues. So even from, I would say, going back to 2013, when cybersecurity was starting to become on a national scale a much, much more visible issue as a result of the executive order, the presidential policy directive, and the activities around the NIST framework, FDA was also beginning to receive a lot of specific inquiries and uh, concerns from security researchers regarding medical device-related vulnerabilities. And that allowed us to begin really exploring this area, um, discovering that there's, there were a lot of unknowns and a lot of, uh, among the different players, of not being able to really work together in a, uh, in a mutually uh, uh, favorable way. A lot of uh, concerns regarding all kinds of issues, whether it's intellectual property, whether it is just not even knowing from the culture uh, within the medical device regulatory space whether it's okay to be interfacing and interacting with others, with security researchers. And so I, I call this again a journey in terms of taking a deep dive and spending time engaging with the different stakeholders, understanding what their needs, what their concerns are, whether it is the medical device manufacturers, whether it's the healthcare delivery organizations, whether it's patients, whether it's the clinicians, whether it's uh, uh, emergency uh, EMTs and others, whether it's uh, uh, folks who are working within government and, of course, within the security research community as well. And beginning what really needs to be a dialogue and what I call often a whole of community approach with regard to getting that conversation going as far as the challenges within this space in improving uh, the cybersecurity posture of medical devices within healthcare. So maybe I'll just stop right there because we can explore that a little bit further yeah. later. Yeah. And uh, Mara, you want to give us a little of your perspective and philosophy? Um, so, from the perspective of HackerOne and all of the hackers that we have on our platform, I mean, this is one of the most, I think, constructive steps that we've seen in terms of. Um, opening and normalizing relations with the wider world and creating avenues for impact that really were not, um, were not as open before. And the, uh, the opportunity to contribute constructively and impactfully to um, really critical safety and security issues is becoming available to the hacker researcher community at scale. And that is something that's very exciting. Um, but there are wider implications to the steps I think FDA has taken. Um, this kind of engagement from a public partner to this community is um, 
virtually unprecedented. And it's something that I think we hope we are going to see a lot more of. Um, I'm, I'm looking at Alan Friedman from NTIA with our, our, you know, our, our other great uh, public partner. Um, has, uh, you know, we've been going through the uh, vulnerability disclosure multi-stakeholder process. So we have, you know, we have incredible engagement both from the hacker researcher community and from the public sector on these issues. Um, you know, this falls very much into the sphere of too important um, not to do everything you can. And uh, we are sort of adopting, I think this is almost like the Department of Energy and all of the above approach. Mm -hmm. We need every tool at our disposal to um, secure the tens of billions of devices that are going to come online in the next four to five years. So. And it's really been a mutual learning process for us as well when, I, when we speak about engaging with the researcher community. First mm -hmm. of all, it's understanding exactly what the medical device regulations are, how FDA operates, mm -hmm. you know, what are the constraints that medical device manufacturers are bound by, and what are the considerations that we at the agency need to give towards allowing medical devices to go into use, to be distributed, and for the, allowing them to remain in use versus when, when is, where is that threshold for when we need to take different types of actions. So there's that whole piece of education mm -hmm. and awareness and then for the agency as well, the agency and, um, and our other stakeholders educating on the extraordinary value uh, that the security research community brings to manufacturers to the to again our ecosystem that there's you know a paucity of otherwise and so there's that expertise that's really very very much needed but how do we bridge that how do we get that communication going without the uh, owners and operators feeling mm. as though they're being attacked by uh, or being told <laughs> that you know, their devices are are no good. So it's it's a question of also finding that right language of conversation. Yeah, yeah, and as uh, part of the learning curve that uh, I've been through and I've seen others in the security research community go through, is we because we're technical people we tend to see everything as a technical problem or a technical obstacle that must be overcome with a technical solution. It's what we know, right? They say if you uh, ask a, a carpenter to, to solve a problem, everything looks like a nail because he has a hammer. Um, and so one of the really nice things, I think, about engaging with somebody like the FDA or some other policy level um, people is that you see other potential options for a solution that give you way more choice, that enable you to do things that you can't do strictly from a technology perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, and so one of the nice things in the post-market guidance, I think, mm -hmm. is that uh, you're using a policy lever to encourage medical device makers and others in the community to kind of do the right thing when it comes to finding, fixing, mm -hmm. uh, and then updating vulnerabilities that may impa impact patient safety. So I wonder if you might just talk a little bit about the philosophy and why you decided on uh, kind of an incentive structure yeah. uh, approach in the post-market guidance. Yeah, again, the history here is that the agency, as well as, you know, for the sake of public health manufacturers, healthcare delivery organizations, no one wants to be in a reactive mode. We want to be ahead of this here. We want to be able to encourage 
as Bo is saying, incentivize or encourage manufacturers and, uh, and of course also hospitals, healthcare facilities to take cybersecurity, to take the safety of devices from a security perspective uh, uh, much more seriously at a, at a different level, at a much more acute level than has been considered in the past. And the way to do that, we have felt, um, is by offering a, basically proposing a regulatory incentive. Number one, clarifying in the post-market guidance what's already been communicated in the pre-market guidance, but really making it again very clear that the FDA, by and large, does not need to receive new submissions, new certifications, in order to be able to allow for updates and patches of, of medical device vulnerabilities. And I see one face, at least, that's kind of like, oh, wow, that's interesting. Because I, this is a concern that we hear about, particularly on the end user side, all the time, where that comes back to us, well, uh, it's impossible to be able to bring these medical devices up to a more secure stance or posture because you, I, we have to take them through the FDA for another recertification process. So that's, that's, real, that's a myth. That you're hearing that from the FDA. That is a myth. Uh, that's not what's in our pre-market guidance. That's not what we have communicated over and over again at various conferences, and that's not within our post-market guidance. There may be some exceptions, but that's not the general rule. We want to be able to have manufacturers, again, do the right thing in terms of being proactive in monitoring and identifying vulnerabilities, or as soon as vulnerabilities are identified by others, in performing the appropriate type of comprehensive risk assessment of that vulnerability, and then applying the appropriate mitigation or remediation for that vulnerability and communicating it. And the stance that we took in the post-market with regarding to the incentive is that we know vulnerabilities with medical devices are, are not only ubiquitous, there's, there's thousands and thousands of them that are going to continue to emerge. Most of them, most of them are not going to even impact on the functionality of the device from a standpoint of being able to deliver care. It is, of course, up to the manufacturer to make that assessment, which we call out here. But for those that would impact if the vulnerability were to be exploited, for those that would affect the functionality of the device, we want to see the manufacturers do the right thing by taking what would be an uncontrolled risk and bringing it down to a controlled risk. If three criteria are met, they would not need to report it to the agency. Normally, these, you know, those kinds of corrections would need to be reported to the agency. But if identification of vulnerability and the appropriate assessment and correction of that vulnerability occurs within 30 days of the manufacturer notify, being not, uh, notified about it, if there were no adverse events associated with that particular vulnerability, and if the manufacturer is an active participant in an information sharing analysis organization, those three criteria would enable, and, and the reporting would happen through that ISAO, and the sharing of information and disclosure would happen through that ISAO, then that manufacturer would not have to go through what would otherwise be a corrective action, or otherwise as known as a, as a recall. 
Um, so this is draft guidance, by the way, and I want to make sure that people are aware that, that what that means, which is that it's not for implementation until guidance is finalized. There's a 90-day period when the guidance, when the docket is open for comment, and we're very much encouraging the public to provide comment. We, in fact, put out several questions with the guidance that we are really looking to solicit viewpoints and perspectives on that will help inform further finalization of the guidance. Yeah, and um, the guidance is open for So comment. 90 days, so it'll be open through April 21st. Mm -hmm. Okay, so mm -hmm. April 21st is, uh, uh, you know, set that on your calendars. If you have any mm -hmm. comments or any thoughts mm -hmm. that you would like the FDA to make sure that they're considering mm -hmm. the final mm -hmm. guidance, mm -hmm. uh, it's a really good time to, to get that started, whether it's a positive or a negative. Um, to be able to have that uh, ability to influence those decisions. Uh, I can tell you from working with Suzanne and her team for the last couple of years, they're very open to mm -hmm. new ideas and they're trying some new ideas themselves. Uh, so that, that's a very good avenue for, uh, for getting some influence into what that finally looks like. Um, so uh, one of the questions that, that came up quite often in the, um, in the collaborative workshop was around whether or not uh, security researchers or hackers were inherently good or inherently bad. And there were a lot of people who had very strong opinions on each. Um, and so, uh, Mara, I know you've worked with lots and lots of hackers in your career. Maybe you could give a little bit of your perspective on that, and uh, we'll hear Suzanne's thoughts as well, having communicated with several of them herself. So, um, one of... <laughs> One of my first experiences doing uh, working on um, a certain export control arrangement that I assume a number of people in this room are familiar with uh, was walking into a room and having somebody ask me, "So, what's the uh, what's the rough ratio of good guy hackers to bad guy hackers? You know, what's the good guy pool to the bad guy pool?" Um, and the only answer to that is that there is no statistical increase in criminality or crime among hacker researchers versus general population. Like, these are just people. They happen to be people who usually want to help you. Um, one of uh, Katie Masuris, our chief policy officer, one of her favorite things to say is that um, the hacker you are friends with is the one that brings you a vulnerability. If the hacker shows up at your door with the vulnerability, they are already doing the right thing. They may not say it or communicate it in a way that you are comfortable with or that you even understand. Um, and this is where we mm. get into the cultural disconnect mm -hmm. and where aligning expectations and sort of norms of conduct and, and all of that become really important. Um, but the hacker who shows up with a vulnerability for you is your friend. Um, it might be a rocky friendship at first, but you'll get there in the end. <laughs> and we will all be better off for it. Um, so I guess that's, you know, I feel like from the perspective of the hacker researcher community, really working on these translations between sort of, okay, this is what we expect and this is how we're used to doing it on both sides. Um, working on that and making that explicit is uh, I think one of the most helpful things for them. And this is where we really get into not just vulner vulnerability disclosure, but you know coordination and where it can sometimes be helpful to have um, third party involvement or you know guidance on how to do this. 
And Suzanne, what's been your experience in uh, getting to know the hacker community coming from um, you know, a physician background? So first, I, ha I really have to applaud I Am The Cavalry because I think that the, uh, the effort that I Am The Cavalry and, the, and it, the success is evident in terms of enabling the type of conversation and the, that type of translation and dialogue and bringing about a change in culture so that there's a mutual understanding uh, among the researchers that are involved as well as the manufacturers and the agency. So we have that and then there are certain medical device manufacturers who have really been champions here. And I think that just by virtue of the example that they have set in being able to work together, partner together with researchers, they're setting a totally different model, a model that demonstrates to the rest of the community that, yes, uh, this is not only possible, but this is in our best interest. And we've heard uh, Michael McNeil from Phillips say this over and over mm -hmm. again, uh, the recognition that the ability to work in partnership with a researcher who's going to go at a device in the pre-market, you know, during the design phase, as well as uh, post-market in bringing forward and not being uh, afraid and having that open uh, door and that communication to bring forward information, it is a demonstration uh, that really sets apart um, that manufacturer from, from many of the others. And we see that as really a, uh, you know, example par excellence of what really can be transformative within the community at large. In some ways, I guess I'd call it also coalition of the willing, you know, among uh, those that, uh, that already have uh, been willing to more than dip their feet in, but actually dive in and show that this is good. This is, this is very, very good for us. Ultimately, the FDA is most concerned, of course, about the safety of these devices and where the cybersecurity concerns are not adequately addressed. Well, yes, then we have an issue here in terms of are these devices appropriately safe for use? And I, I particularly like the example of Phillips because um, I think his comments during the workshop really showed that um, vulnerability coordination and disclosure is hard. It's, it's not, it takes a lot of work. It takes uh, intent and resources and just sheer will to develop that capacity and really put that to work for your organization. Um, but the payoff is huge. Mm -hmm. And I think his, his very positive experiences with this, and particularly with the pre-market, um, that, that can be so instructive for organizations both of that size and of smaller sizes for how they can start to look at uh, the hacker researcher community as an element of their security development um, and also ongoing security in post-market. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point to bring up, you know, in terms of being able to tap into external mm -hmm. assets that for smaller companies, yeah. uh, their capability of having in-house resources of that nature are, are often um, lacking. Mm -hmm. And to be able to develop some kind of a model of community where uh, companies that have some extraordinary innovative technologies that are you know, very, very promising, but security has been perhaps for them lowest on their, you know, uh, on their list of priorities until these issues now start to emerge. Um, they're looking for the ability to 
leverage whatever other assets are there. And I, this is, you know, this is one manner in which, uh, mm -hmm. you know, security researchers can also make a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah, and one of the things that I've noticed um, in our community is that we are a finite supply, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. As uh, the demand for security researchers is going way, way up, uh, it's really hard to then manufacture new security researchers with like a decade's worth of experience, right? You can't, it's like aging, uh, aging wine or aging whiskey. Um, you can't go from zero years to 25 years in a bottle overnight. It takes some time to develop that talent pool. And since there's only a finite number of us, I think what a lot of really smart medical device makers and others have done is they've learned from some of the techniques and practices that exist in the software world uh, in terms of adversarial resilience modeling. You know, looking what an attacker might do uh, if it's an unintended use case, right? Uh, a lot of safety disciplines, whether it's automotive or medical, they focus on the intended use, right? What would a physician do in this position uh, if they were reasonably using an interface to inset, uh, insert a, a set of command instructions? Um, adversaries and accidents, you know, random viruses that work their way around internal networks, don't work in intended use cases. They explicitly work in unintended use or abuse cases. So taking some of that mentality and putting it into some of the uh, uh, thought processes that go into developing those devices can really, really help. Um, uh, they help not just stop the attackers you know will come at you, but they help uh, avoid unintended consequences of um, just the high number of interactions that these devices not, uh, naturally have on a network or if they are in an internet environment which has uh, particular challenges such as uh, the background hostility level. Uh, I think there's some statistics like every six seconds on the internet you get hit with a virus or something. Um, that is what exists in that environment. And now as you're dropping this medical device into a new environment, learning from those who have resisted and, and um, kept people uh, safe and secure uh, over the last 20 or 30 years in the software uh, industry, um, learning from that discipline and translating that into uh, the medical device discipline can really help. Uh, at the same time, software can maybe learn from some of the uh, safety disciplines in what truly matters. Uh, and um, what I've seen security researchers fail to do over and over again is really to prioritize and recognize a huge distinction between a security issue and a safety issue, right? The difference being, you know, one causes harm to someone and one is maybe merely an inconvenience. And I think that's some place that medical device makers are way ahead of us. And uh, Suzanne, I don't know mm -hmm. if you want to talk a little bit about that distinction. I know it's one of the things that we've had several conversations about in the past, and you've helped me to understand where that distinction really lies uh, and how we need to start thinking in that way so that when there's a security issue, we don't automatically assume it must be fixed, but we triage it and prioritize it along with the other safety issues or other risks that exist in a clinical environment. Sure, so uh, a couple of things, I'm gonna get to that, but okay. I, as you were speaking, I was reminded of something else in terms of what we've observed 
um, over the past year or so, and um, and this really um, emerged at the work at the recent workshop as well, the one that we held in January. There is a lot of coalescing or self-organizing within the community of smaller groups or consortia, which is very encouraging to see, where you get, you know, that uh, that. Uh, group of researchers, um, engineers, um, uh, manufacturers that have regulatory backgrounds, healthcare providers, clinicians, really talking to one another, and they have to be able to speak the same language. And that, you know, that kind of dialogue also helps get at the questions that you're, you know, that you just mentioned in terms of safety versus security, or how did the two kind of, uh, where did the two collide? Um, what we did within the post-market guidance was uh, we developed a model of one axis being exploitability on the other axis being uh, the severity of impact to health with the expectation that a manufacturer could utilize this kind of, uh, it's not really a matrix, but it's, it's a shaded from, from white all the way to black, you know, with, a, with gray in between of uh, depending upon the, the assessment of the impact to health if that particular vulnerability were exploited from non-minimal, uh, critical, serious, catastrophic, and then looking at exploitability, that would inform the type of measure uh, or action that a manufacturer would need to take. Now, obviously, there is that you know kind of gray zone in between, and that is where I'll, there's a need for uh, further development also of tools. We had you know, pointed to the Common Vulnerability Scoring System, the CVSS, as one of the uh, tools that, that can be utilized, recognizing that it has some limitations within the medical device world or the clinical environment. But it's that idea of being able to take a look at a vulnerability uh, for a manufacturer, make that assessment, and on the basis of what would be its what what would be its impact? Is it one of inconvenience if it were exploited or ver versus what is its impact towards risk to health or harm to patient? And to uh, uh, identify based upon that, what are the appropriate mitigations to put in place? We do encourage that even for vulnerabilities that again, don't have a safety impact, that they should be dealt with. It's not that they should be ignored, but there's different levels obviously also of urgency or timeliness with regard to, again, um, the presence of that vulnerability and where it falls out with regard to a scale of um, were that vulnerability to exploit it, how might it impact on essential clinical performance, and therefore how might that therefore translate to harm to the patient. Yeah. yeah, and that can, that can sometimes be difficult for researchers where, for example, you might have something that is technically quite a cool vulnerability that is reliably exploitable, but that has zero implications for patient safety or care delivery. Um, that's, that is a difficult position to be in. And there are certain cultural differences between, or mm -hmm. actually there are cultural similarities I've seen between sort of the medical device world and um, sort of ICS. Uh, you get many more similarities, I think, between the complex layered systems of, say, a hospital environment and, you know, say, a nuclear power plant or other piece of critical infrastructure which potentially incorporates, you know, 
core elements of legacy systems and new things and all of it's connected, mm -hmm. not very much of it is very secured. Um, in that kind of complexity, you can't depend on rapid update cycles, which is what we love. Um, and you really have to make hard choices. You can't just say the vulnerability exists and I've, I, you know, I've developed a patch, therefore we have to fix it. The hard thing to understand sometimes is the case where you really need to not fix it. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, where if, for example, you are in one of these complex environments and you have something that you could fix, and it would be nice if you could, but you're in a good known operating state, you have to have good reason to, to alter that. And those determinations are difficult and they are very much in the gray area of the spectrum. And they are not going to be for the researcher to make in a lot of cases. So there's, there's a give and take of you know, sort of um, dominion over the vulnerability and you have to be able to uh, both take it on and let it go in order for this to really be of maximum benefit to the patients. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, uh, one of the things in talking with medical device makers and others in the ecosystem that I've learned is that sometimes you favor a more vulnerable piece of software because its performance is better known than a newer, uh, less vulnerable piece of software. And it took me a while to get my head wrapped around that. But you know, if you think about it, um, there have been some really good uh, efforts to develop software that is reliable and performs as expected uh, that have stretched back for years. Uh, and there may be a newer piece of software where we know that there are, um, you know, certain vulnerabilities don't exist, but we don't know what the performance might be. So there might be something that doesn't have a security impact per se, but that has a reliability impact, mm -hmm. such mm -hmm. as, oh, well, when that happens, the software just restarts itself. Well, that's great from a security perspective, but what does that do if the software is restarting itself in the middle of a procedure, in the middle of an operation? It has those fail-safes built in, but the failure itself mm -hmm. may cause uh, more of a problem uh, than, uh, than the vulnerability that exists in the software. Uh, and there's a, a concept in um, medical device development. It's one of the ISO standards, I believe, and it's software of known provenance versus unknown provenance. Mm -hmm. And when we in the cybersecurity community tend to talk about software of known provenance, it's generally something that's um, uh, commercial off the shelf, or it's uh, open source package where you know who the develop are, developers are, et cetera. Uh, and from what I understand in the medical device parlance, it's actually the opposite. It's known provenance if it was developed in-house according to these procedures uh, by developers who are hired and employed by the company itself. And so that's one of those, uh, going back to the culture and the communication things, that's one of those things that we've got to harmonize if we want to eventually get to the right outcomes. Um, and I don't think we have yet solved that riddle, um, but I know that there's a, a kind of advancing, I won't call it a science because uh, that gives it too high credibility, but there's an advancing movement of software supply chain uh, and being able to apply some of the same principles of hardware supply chain, think, you know, bolts and specifications and known stressors and failure conditions, to software components uh, that I think we could also learn a little bit about from some of these more traditional manufacturers who have now gotten into software. So I don't know if you, uh, either if you have okay. any thoughts on that observation. 
Yeah, I think that's a really critical sort of part of all of this is um, do, do, you know, do you know what is in your software? Do you know what's in the software you're running? And that's not always at the forefront of developers' minds when they are putting something together. Uh, so um, yeah, I think there was the recent vulnerability in, um, what was it, glibc? That was like, yeah, that, that map was terrifying. Um, <laughs> So, if you if you are incorporating libraries or you know or building on open source software, there is not always that verification. And in sort of safety safety orientated verticals, you talk a lot about verification and assurance. Um, whereas in software, you're generally just focused on security. Mm -hmm. uh, is it patched? Has it been updated? Um, but sometimes, you know, somewhat counterintuitively, the drive to secure everything can conflict with verification and assurance in a way that negatively impacts safety. And trying to, um, trying to get past that sort of uh, counterintuitive riddle and, and really make that into just, this is everybody's problem, we all have to deal with mm -hmm. this, and it's, it is about balancing it um, in every case. There's no one size fits all. Uh, which is one of the reasons why I'm really glad that we're going down the sort of voluntary route mm -hmm. in all of this, because I think if compulsory, I, I don't even know where you would begin to develop compulsory standards for this. Like, how would that even happen? Yeah. Well, at, at the FDA workshop, mm -hmm. there was actually somebody who got up and said, hey, we've got this PCI you know, thing, the payment card industry standard, that's been totally successful, and why don't we just apply that to all the medical devices? Um, yeah, and I, I, it was all I could do to not jump up from my chair and go tackle <laughs> the guy so it wouldn't be on record. But, uh, you know, I think that there's, you know, putting aside um, whether or not PCI has been successful, I know people have differing opinions, uh, but fundamentally you're trying to, uh, with PCI and, and a lot of the other security paradigms that we have in the corporate IT infrastructure, you're trying to apply a solution for data confidentiality to a problem set of human life integrity. The goals are at cross purposes. And the example that I often use is, generally in the corporate IT world, you wanna lock somebody out of a system if they fail to get the password right three times or 12 times or whatever the number is. Well, if that device is uh, in an emergency room and you have a matter of seconds before a patient has irreparable harm you don't want to have any barrier between a physician and life-giving therapies. And I think that that example kind of perfectly um, illustrates the fallacy of applying some of the, uh, the thought processes that we have in the traditional IT space directly to uh, information security or uh, cyber safety in the, the healthcare space. Yeah, and I think there's, mm -hmm. there's definite value in direct observation for, uh, I think in the previous roundtable that we were in, there was the, the fellow who was talking about, okay, well, we love biometrics now, fingerprint scans are, are excellent. Um, and then he would take his students around to a hospital and <laughs> like, oh, they all wear gloves. 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 And they're yes. all covered in blood. <laughs> and this is, you can't put a fingerprint scanner in an operating thing, theater. It's just, it, you can't do it in an ER. It just doesn't work. And you know, what may be logically the best security solution, you know, while you're sitting at your terminal or like working it out on a piece of paper, may in practice 
turn out to be an obstacle to care delivery. Right. And mm. uh, there's really, I think you've mentioned it mm. before, there's no better way to learn mm. the difference than by just looking mm -hmm. and, and experiencing and talking to people who are actually charged with care delivery. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yep. Yeah. Um, I, in December, we put together an event. Uh, I and the Cavalry put together an event in Boston called it Cyber MedRx. And the intent was to map out the uh, stakeholder ecosystem and to have at least one representative from each group within that ecosystem come in and share their experiences, their perspective. The idea was we wanted to uh, get ideas on the table to do some basic brainstorming, to come to a common perspective, recognize that everybody has the same goals and objectives, uh, and then start to develop what a solution might look like. We were under no illusions that within a day of, you know, 80 people being there, we would come up with the right answer for every situation. <laughs> but to start having that collaborative, cooperative dialogue uh, in a high trust, high collaboration in environment, uh, I think really started catalyzing in some people's minds um, the changes that they were going to have to go through and the ideas that they were going to have to start adopting or abandoning because they would or wouldn't work. Uh, and Suzanne, I know you participated in mm -hmm. that. Uh, and, and Mara, I don't think you were there, but that was a... Uh, uh, I think for a lot of people it was eye-opening what we really need to do. I think it was wonderful also to have a patient perspective brought mm -hmm. into that particular session. Uh, and uh, we, uh, we were really privileged to have the same individual speak mm -hmm. at our workshop as well, a Marie Mo, who is a member of I Am The Cavalry, um, who is a researcher herself as well as a patient with an implantable device. Mm -hmm and providing, giving the patient you know, the opportunity to speak, to give voice to what the concerns would be from his or her perspective, particularly in the area of being well-informed, particularly in terms of what does that dialogue look like between the caregiver, the physician, and the patient is an area that, you know, certainly at the FDA, we're in the process of exploring and uh, exploding even further. Um, one of our uh, key strategic priorities at CDRH for 2016 and, and 17 is partnering with patients. Uh, and it's not unique to cybersecurity, it's across all, uh, all areas uh, because it, Obviously, it's the patients that, you know, that are at the core of what we're doing, uh, but what Marie was able to really uh, bring or highlight in her talk was, through her own experiences, the need for better education, first of all, on the part of physicians themselves who are uh, uh, utilizing prescribing devices and planting devices, and what the security um, aspects of that device are. There's a need for leveled, uh, for increasing the awareness and education on that side, and then for the physician to be able to have a discussion with the patient, for the patient to be empowered in terms of asking the right questions, because what may be appropriate for one patient may not actually be necessary or appropriate for another patient, but to at least have that information to be able to that was one of my educated discussion. That was one of my mm -hmm. favorite parts of mm -hmm. the um, of the most recent workshop was talking mm -hmm. about the therapeutic index of mm -hmm. of a given device and how you know cybersecurity and cyber safety actually mm -hmm. factor factor into that. So the the whole idea being um, for any medical therapy there is you know 
um, sub-therapeutics, so too little to actually do anything, and then there's you know, sort of uh, an excess or overdose. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's, in the middle, if it works as intended, is that going to be of sufficient benefit for you to take on any residual risk? Mm -hmm. um, and that is a really fascinating set of questions to think about when you're looking at connected devices, particularly yes. from, from mm -hmm. a researcher perspective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's I think one of the one of the biggest pieces of hope that I have uh, for these types of collaborations is in uh, the information security industry. We always talk about what metrics we need. How do we measure our effectiveness? And nobody can quite agree on it. I think in safety domains, there's a very clear cut indicator and set of indicators that have been developed over hundreds of years to tell us what really matters, right? And then we can look at the impact and effect of different. Uh, information security, cybersecurity um, approaches on those indicators that are already well established, and we can say, hey, this works, this doesn't. Uh, we know that we need to change that over there. Uh, and so it can help us realign our discipline um, because we have a, a consistent reference that we can measure against uh, in a domain that um, is really not that controversial, right? Human life, good. Loss of human life, not good, right? And, and then everywhere else on that index, it's a, it's a fairly clear spectrum. Um, so I like that aspect of going into these domains, and I think mm -hmm. that it can help inform mm -hmm. some of the work that we do to you know, maybe keep um, adversaries out of our laptops. Yeah, I do think the, so we, I guess you mentioned earlier in, in your opening remarks about how um, the national security implications of this and how, um, you know, how the exchange works both ways. And I, I do think that, you know, on, on your point just now, like, if you are in the business of national security and you are not paying attention to what is going on here, you really ought to start. <laughs> Yep. Because with tens of billions of devices coming online in the next four to five years, um, this is the most comprehensive and I think constructive process that we currently have in place for uh, figuring out how we are actually going to secure them, not theoretically, but with specific goals and uh, specific achievable um, outcomes in mind. Uh, so it's it's more than just saying, we're going to have all of these new devices, how do we do this, and, and a lot of hand-waving, which is what I hear more of out of the national security community. Um, and this is really, like, we're already on the hard questions here, and I think that's really instructive. Yep. So it's uh, about time for q and I figured I'd give uh, each of the, the panelists up here about 30 seconds to a minute to have any uh, kind of closing thoughts from this, and then we'll open up the floor to discussion. Um, if you want to tweet, uh, hashtag ACCyber uh, is how you can find us, or at ACScowcroft uh, is our account. So, um, Mara, do you want to start us off with your final thoughts for this part of the discussion? Um, try to end on a hopeful note. Um, I think that. You know, I, I really enjoy getting to speak with our public sector um, partners because the, the opening up of that that I have seen sort of in the last six months is, I think, really encouraging. And, you know, there, there admittedly have been some, you know, process in government for how we secure things, for how we develop policy in uh, areas relevant to cybersecurity has not always been perfect. 
But on the flip side, neither has participation from the security research community always been forthcoming. And I think if I could leave the um, if I could leave the room with one thought, it's that I think over the past year, the security research community has definitely come down on the side of we are here for you. Mm -hmm. um, so if you are doing policy formation that is relevant to cybersecurity, we are here. We are here to help. We're not going anywhere. Um, so come find us. Mm -hmm. okay. Suzanne? I think that, well, to take off mm -hmm. from what Mara was saying, um, <coughs> this is a complex space for sure. Um, we've been seeing progress. Um, we're hopefully been part of that progress happening in small steps. Uh, I don't think any mm -hmm. of us had any expectation that there were going to be huge leaps. But again, the emphasis being on needing those partnerships and needing the community to really be uh, willing to roll up its sleeves and to do its share, to do its part, because this is you know, an area, with, certainly within medical devices, that the agency alone is uh, not going to be able to, it's a heavy lift, we're not going to be able to do it on our own. We really count on the expertise and the collaboration aspect that um, so many of our stakeholders, uh, those who all participate in the workshop and, and the many, many more can provide uh, as, uh, great input in terms of approaches and solutions to this as we continue to evolve. Um, with Again, with regard to the guidance, it's, once more, it's a draft, and we know that there's further work to be done. Uh, we're really counting on very constructive feedback to be brought forward so that we can take that uh, into account as we uh, develop a, a document that will be implementable by the community, by the industry. And probably the biggest challenge for us is that we, uh, we took on ourselves as in talking about the incentive, the idea of becoming a member and participating in an ISAO, an information sharing analysis organization, recognizing that the whole concept of an ISAO, what that is, what that might look like, is yet being defined. And so this is an opportunity that we see at the agency to uh, really, uh, jump in and have the community help us define it for healthcare and public health for our sector in a way that's going to work without waiting for the rest of government and the rest of the community and the nation to define what an ISAO is because we, we do believe that this is an important um, piece of the puzzle that needs to be further clarified. Threat information sharing, there's a lot out there, but the idea of vulnerability information sharing and what that might look like is an area that um, is, I would say, in its nascency. And I think that FDA is one of the first to really be involved in terms of trying to uh, put together what that might look like. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I'd agree. Mm. And mm. Uh, for my kind of final thoughts mm. before we open up the Q&A, mm. um, I would just say that mm. You know, we've seen the uh, mm. traditional disciplines of patient safety and cybersecurity start mm. to collide here. So where our uh, areas of concern, areas of expertise overlap, um, we will be safer sooner if we work together. Uh, and so I just encourage more of that mm. collaboration. Uh, so with that, uh, I'll open it up for questions. And again, if you want to tweet, uh, hashtag ACCyber uh, and at ACScowcroft. Yes. 
And if you wouldn't mind, just uh, wait for a microphone and then identify yourself and ask your question. Hi, thank you. Uh, Jonathan Lichman from the Providence Group. Um, thanks for a very interesting um, discussion. I want to ask a question, though, that is uh, not technical. Not and it, it gets to the issue of uh, more of risk management. So when um, you look at standards for risk management for cybersecurity, whether it's ISO, uh, C2M2, or NIST, um, there is a focus at the enterprise level, tier one. And it's executives uh, that make decisions about the purchase of, particularly in hospitals, of medical devices, which are connected often and increasingly so, and could be avenues for uh, attack and, and problems outside of just the device that they're purchasing. Um, but in the guidance, while it, it talks a little bit about the provider, it doesn't really talk about how um, non-technical executive levels are going to be able to make risk-based cybersecurity decisions on devices um, unless they really dig into the technical aspects. They, unlike food, there's no labeling or, or with automobiles, uh, safety uh, kinds of information for the buyer. And I'm just wondering, how does the FDA um, think about that in terms of you know, who, the, who the consumer at the enterprise level really is for a lot of these devices and the risks that they have to balance? That's a great question. That gives me the opportunity to clarify as well what uh, FDA's uh, authority is and what our limitations are and why this also comes back to whole of community um, in that uh, our authority, our jurisdiction is bound by our regulated industry. That's medical device manufacturers. So it would be very unusual it's rare, I mean it happens, but it's unusual for guidance to be written for the healthcare provider. We understand the healthcare providers or executives and others in delivery organizations will read this guidance, but it is not intended uh, to be implemented by uh, the healthcare provider. It's written for the medical device manufacturer who needs to do uh, the risk assessment. The risk assessment is written on, you know, for, for their purposes. Again, that's not to say that um, there isn't that critical piece absolutely on the hospital side. And so what we'll do is utilize, leverage other means by which uh, we want to communicate to the healthcare delivery organizations the importance of, uh, uh, of doing the types of monitoring, surveillance, assessments, uh, the procurement aspect, which is an important lever here, uh, bringing that forward, which we can do through different kinds of other communications, uh, through outreach, which we'll do, through roadshows, through conferences, but, and also bringing in other parts of the ecosystem to help with that, to speak to that. Um, so that is, you know, where some of our partners, even within HHS, within the Department of Health and Human Services, whether it's Office of Civil Rights or Office of the National Coordinator that FDA works very closely with in a more, um, uh, you know, kind of comprehensive way to get, in, you know, integrated in terms of there being these multiple parties and each has to be able to do its share. I mean, we, we will hear all the time, for example, from medical device manufacturers that uh, we can secure a device up the wazoo in a vacuum, but what, what happens when it is actually deployed and put onto a system 
whole other ball of wax there. So there is uh, definitely you know, that aspect of it that has to be brought to bear. Uh, and again, um, we'll use other opportunities or other mechanisms other than guidance to be able to convey that. But we also look also to some of the other stakeholders to share in what identifying what those levers might be or those incentives might be in order to be able to reach the level of the executive. And, and there's been so many discussions with regard to reaching the C-suite, not just for healthcare and public health, but in mm -hmm. so many other areas of cybersecurity that um, that has been brought forward as a, as a real challenge area where the technical folks get it, but it's just not uh, brought you know, high up enough into an organization. So yeah. that's a universal issue. Yeah. 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 And I'll say mm -hmm. that um, you know, I've mm -hmm. got no delusions mm -hmm. that a CEO or a, mm -hmm. a member of the board should have to learn to speak mm -hmm. geek in order to run the business, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, I think that while there has been an increased awareness at that level of the importance of cybersecurity and cyber safety, uh, it should by no means be um, something where the executives stop learning about how to do business and start, you know, going to CISSP school, right? That just doesn't make sense. Uh, and so um, I think that using some of the existing uh, language that they use, using some of the existing pieces that are out there, uh, and I'll point to the pre-market guidance as a mm -hmm. perfect example of this, um, healthcare delivery organizations can incorporate some of that knowledge and some of that learning into uh, the other really great choke point in the ecosystem, uh, other than regulatory, which is procurement. Okay. Uh, mm -hmm. And we've seen efforts from mm -hmm. Mayo Clinic, Adventist Healthcare, and several others mm -hmm. to be better and smarter about what they buy and how they buy it. Not by um, bringing in a bunch of geeks to uh, go and tell other people how to do their jobs, but by informing the decision makers and the stakeholders, right? To consider these parts of uh, the risk equation with just as much weight as other parts of the risk equation. Um, you can't do that by trying to infuse them with uh, geek speak. You have to do that by educating them and providing them with uh, something in their own language. Um, and uh, part of what we at Eye on the Cavalry started doing a couple of years ago is we were looking at how we could um, improve those decisions. Uh, and the output of uh, some of that work was the Hippocratic Oath for Connected Medical Devices that we just released. Um, the idea was that anyone in the healthcare uh, delivery ecosystem, whether they're a device maker, uh, a delivery organization, an executive, physician, whatever, a patient, could look at this and see their role. Uh, and so that is written in um, non-technical language, and in fact, I've got it here, and I'll read it for you if you'd like. Um, and it's meant to help inform uh, the decision makers at any level, whether they're a physician, executive, you know, a CFO could hopefully read this thing and agree and understand it. Um, so uh, I'll read it just very briefly for you. Uh, it says, I will revere and protect human life and always act for the benefit of my patients. I recognize that all systems fail. Inherent defects and adverse conditions are inevitable. Capabilities meant to improve or save life may also harm or end life. Where failure impacts patient safety, care delivery must be um, resilient against both indiscriminate accidents and intentional adversaries. Each of the roles in a diverse care delivery ecosystem shares a common responsibility. As one who seeks to preserve and improve life, I must first do not harm. To that end, I swear to fulfill to the best of my ability these principles. 
Uh, and then the five principles are cyber safety by design. Uh, I respect domain expertise from those that came before. I will inform design with security lifecycle, adversarial resilience, and secure supply chain practices. Third party collaboration. I acknowledge that vulnerabilities will persist despite best efforts. I will invite disclosure of potential safety or security issues reported in good faith. Evidence capture. I foresee unexpected outcomes. I will facilitate evidence capture, preservation, and analysis to learn from safety investigations. Resilience and containment. I recognize failures in components and in the environments are inevitable. I will safeguard critical elements of care delivery in adverse conditions and maintain a safe state with clear indicators when failure is unavoidable. And cyber safety updates. I understand that cyber safety will always change. I will support prompt, agile, and secure updates. And the intent of that is really to, uh, to be able to allow care providers to understand at a business level, at a care delivery level, um, what to expect from uh, the medical device makers so that they can then evaluate that in the, the procurement process, as well as what is expected of them when they put it into that healthcare delivery environment to maintain and uphold those things that the, uh, the medical device maker started, that maybe an intermediary vendor has continued, and that a patient and physician will ultimately have the final say on, which is an informed consent for uh, how they manage their own care. So I think that there are, uh, there's room to improve there, certainly. Um, I think we've talked about some of the ways that uh, 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 procurement offices or that healthcare delivery organizations could do better in that aspect. Uh, and I think that we've got some of the building blocks. It's just a matter of pulling them together, starting to use them, figuring out which ones work and are most effective uh, and which ones uh, are maybe too costly or cause too much of a delay. I was just going to add also to that that you're talking about at the executive level, we're also aware, uh, and you're, we're going to see more and more of this, especially with the different types of you know, hospital ransomware attacks, and that um, we have really more on the boots on the ground in terms of uh, staff working in hospitals, the lack of awareness and education for cyber hygiene, for basic cyber hygiene. And this is an area that also, <coughs> Uh, there's a lot of room and a lot of opportunity for improvement there. Um, you know, Michael McNeil and I always talk about the fact that his daughter, I think, is a, is a emergency room resident, and I, as a physician, will say also that even from the standpoint of a clinical provider, there's really no education, no curriculum, no training that's being provided at this day and age to make the provider aware to have that kind of index of suspicion even of the potential for something you know that ought to be looked looked for to even have it on their radar as well as again just the basics of hygiene in how you in, in that work environment. And um, until that also gets remedied a bit, I think that we're just gonna see more and more of these kinds of concerns. So it's at the, at the very top level, but it's also throughout the entire organization where there's opportunity to improve. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, so microphone and then 
who you are and ask your question. Thanks, yeah, uh, Patrick Tucker with Defense One. So when you uh, opened up the discussion, you talked a little bit about uh, Phillips and the Mayo Clinic and some people that you thought were sort of industry leaders. I wondered if uh, everybody could go the other direction and name some institutions, not necessarily that are putting out, you know, vulnerability-filled pacemakers, but that are maybe a little bit resistant to uh, some of the things you're talking about here, like bug bounties or, or this entire process that you're laying out. Is that something? And if you can't, what process exists for discovering them besides, you know, somebody like dropping dead? All right, thanks. Yeah. Um Thank you for that thought-provoking and interesting <laughs> question. Um, so, so here's where I try and bridge to something to avoid answering that directly. Um, I, I don't feel like naming and shaming is the right way to go in this area. Um, some other people might not feel that way. They might want to name and shame. Uh, but I think for the purposes of, of myself and probably for this panel, we'll avoid calling specific people out who are um, not living up to the expectations that we have uh, less than arbitrarily set, but that we uh, that would impose upon them, right? Um, so part of our, our mission uh, of outreach is to uh, not impose our judgment on somebody else, but just to inform their decision making. Uh, what I will say is that even in some of the most transigent, intransigent organizations, you've got two or three really passionate people who are doing the best that they can to get attention to the issue, to do better, to improve. Um, but that doesn't always filter up to the people that need to be making those decisions. So um, calling out a single organization uh, is actually counterproductive to the work that they're already doing, and it only hurts them, hurts their chances of getting better. Um, uh, the second part of your question was around uh, well, mechanisms. Like, name them. Is there a process for right. uh, like whereby they might be? Because I mean, what you're describing is all voluntary. You know, and, mm some process for uh, naming them or helping them come to light before you have some critical incident. Right. So I think that um, you can look right now at some indicators that exist, uh, things like having a coordinated vulnerability disclosure program. Uh, and again, I'll mention Phillips and Michael McDeal. We've talked uh, a lot about them today. Um, organizations like Draeger, which is a European medical device maker, that have made a commitment to work with third parties acting in good faith to take those reports of vulnerabilities, to research them, investigate them, and then act upon them, right? That can tell you many things. Uh, what it tells me is that um, they've done their own internal testing, and so they won't be overwhelmed, ideally, with uh, new reports, that they have a mechanism to quickly identify whether or not uh, an issue is a safety-related issue, which means that they've got their paperwork and their processes down really well. Uh, and that they have an ability to address that in a proactive manner to inoculate the rest of uh, their deployed um, products against similar things, right? Uh, it's not proof positive, but they're indicators that they are confident that, that those things can happen, right? So I think that um, those are things that you can look for right off the bat. I would also say that uh, because I know what Mayo Clinic is doing in their procurement process, um, using uh, something like uh, the buying power and choices that an organization like that makes as an indicator that there has been at least some level of rigor, some level of interaction, some level of cyber safety paid in the development of the design and deployment lifecycle, um, that those are fairly reliable indicators, even if there's not a, uh, a, a spectrum chart that shows, you know, these are the worst and these are the best. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And the only thing I'll add to that is that uh, voluntary doesn't mean from the agency's perspective that it's a free-for-all. Um, anytime an assessment is done, uh, whether it's cybersecurity or otherwise, we, and we evaluate if we disagree with the outcome of the assessment that's done by a manufacturer, then we have uh, various measures that we can take, various um, efforts, uh, whether it is through uh, public communication, a safety communication, we're, we're obviously going to engage with that manufacturer right away if we disagree with their with the assessment. And, uh, and it's through that interaction that subsequent activities would be determined appropriately. Yeah, I, mm. I would also just add mm -hmm. that um, naming and shaming does mm. become really, really mm. counterproductive because, uh, you know, in our experience, it really pays to be uh, empathetic towards vendors who are starting down this path and who are beginning this journey. Um, sometimes vendor, a vendor will get off on the wrong foot. Uh, there, there have been cases where that has happened and you don't want to scare off the rest of the industry just because they had a bad experience um, and you know maybe didn't meet whatever criteria you're looking for right now. Um, but generally speaking, if, if there are fails in this area, it's because people are trying and you don't want to discourage that. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. Thank you. Nick Uran, uh, Vaxxin Medical Cyber Defense. I think this question is primarily for Dr. Schwartz, a hypothetical scenario that I think gets into that gray area that you were talking about earlier. If there were a known vulnerability in a medical device that led to it becoming a pivot point into other parts of the medical enterprise mm -hmm. where maybe you could access financial data or insurance data or other HIPAA-protected data, mm -hmm. but it had no impact whatsoever on the clinical operation of the device or the therapy of the device, would you see that situation as falling under your regulatory purview, mm -hmm. or would you not see it as something that would need to be reported? That is, um, that's a great question. And um, as a hypothetical, you know, particularly if we're talking about a vulnerability that would allow access to other parts of the system, including electronic health records, because the potential could be there in terms of um, affecting the integrity even of the electronic health data, which could impact even on, therefore, decision, clinical decision-making and therapeutics. We would certainly have concerns about that. And we would likely work together with our HHS partners and Office of Civil Rights in terms of what necessary um, actions and appropriate actions need to be taken in order to correct that because it's twofold. You're talking about privacy data uh, uh, as well as, again, data that can be monetized, um, but you're also talking about a potential for uh, a, a safety risk. Now, uh, we would work also together with the manufacturer to understand what assessment they had made from a safety perspective, but it would likely be some, uh, uh, some type of joint effort, which we often do in consultation with Office of Civil Rights or Office of Civil Rights with us when it comes to con some of these types of concerns. So if I might just throw a, a comment in there. Um, having worked at a hospital, I can tell you that they have <laughs> lots of vulnerabilities. It's called open doors, and anybody can come into a healthcare facility and potentially pick up a, a piece of paper. Um, 
so I think it's not always a clear cut answer whether something might fall into a regulatory domain or one person's problem or another person's problem. Um, but I think it's important for us to recognize that uh, there are a lot of risks that exist that are not going to be cyber risks and let's not kill ourselves looking at um, potential impacts from connected devices where there are other equally or more important risks in other, in other areas. Yes. Nick Leiserson with uh, Congressman Langevin's office. Um, thank you all for the panel. Thank you, Dr. Schwartz, for your leadership. Um, I want to talk about something that Mara hit on in her opening statement, which is that this uh, public partnership with the security research community is, she said, virtually unprecedented. So going forward, we now have a precedent. Um, and how can we, you know, so Dr. Schwartz, I, I'd be interested from your perspective, um, if you could expound some more on how you first got involved with I Am the Cavalry and how this process got started. And for Bo and Mara, if you can talk about, you know, how do we bring this to other federal agencies, federal partners that uh, have safety concerns? It was actually here. It was Council. here. Yes, I think it was here. This yep. is going back. I don't even remember how long. Um, October twenty fourth. It was before. <laughs> um, it was before your first workshop. Yes. 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 So, uh, Atlantic Council reached out to FDA on this particular issue, and I think that uh, yeah, it was with regard to even initially putting together some of the thoughts behind what was going to be that white paper, mm -hmm. if, I, if I remember yes. correctly, the genesis of that. And uh, that was the beginning of what became more of an interactive dialogue between I and the Cavalry, between Bo and Josh Corman um, as well with FDA on this issue. And again, I, I just have to commend the approach, which was one of Great diplomacy, first of all, um, but with this, you know, eagerness to wanting to understand, and uh, that type of an approach of, um, can we talk to you? We want to understand better your world, um, and that was the approach that I and the cavalry took. And we, in turn, also were very receptive and responsive to that, and wanted to understand the researcher world uh, better. And uh, what flowed from that was really a reaching out to the researchers, first of all, that we already had interfaced with in the past in the medical device arena uh, to include them within our initial workshop, which was the workshop in 2014, mm -hmm. October 2014, which was quite interesting because there were, you know, there was frankly some very difficult moments in that workshop, in that public workshop. You can go online and look at the, uh, watch the archives of that. But it needed to happen in a sense as far as bringing a lot of those pain points into the open as opposed to them happening behind closed doors in different rooms among different groups. But really there was that sharing of pain among many of the different stakeholders and listening to understanding perspectives. And I, for us at FDA, that meant also that we needed to be much further engaged in understanding um, what, um, 
what the needs are within uh, this entire community and how can we better be working together towards the greater good in a sense. Um, so uh, there just was a lot of dialogue and then we invited uh, a group of security researchers um, uh, to meet with us as well to uh, share with us what their concerns were, as well as to utilize that as an opportunity to educate from the FDA side how we regulate and what we know from me medical device manufacturers as their concerns. And it's just been a process. Uh, I, I don't know how to kind of uh, articulate it any better other than to say it's been a very natural kind of process that uh, has therefore enabled me when I'll speak at different meetings to uh, raise the importance of this kind of uh, open dialogue and conversation and recognize also an important piece to recognize is within the agency, within our center CDRH and our cybersecurity working group and our center director alone will say that the researchers are critical drivers here. We value what it is that they bring to the ecosystem. So when you have that really even coming, it's, it's understood to us, but even coming from the leadership of the organization, um, how important that component is um, uh, and how much we have derived and learned uh, and grown from the experience. I, I don't think that our guidance would be where it is today had it not been for the type of engagements that we have had with the researcher community. That's saying a lot, actually. That's very atypical for a, for a regulatory guidance. Um, so, but, it, but it has been, because a lot of what we've learned through our engagement uh, on various standards that we had recognized that were just not even uh, part of the uh, uh, on, on our horizon became really, really important to include and to incorporate in the, uh, in the guidance. Uh, Mara, you want to answer next? Um, so you just touched on a, a really critical point, particularly for our public sector partners, which is, um, and, and also for private sector, but that's executive support. Um, and having the support of leadership in engaging with the hacker researcher community is, it is invaluable and it is an incredible driver of further progress. If you have support at that level, it becomes a lot easier to, um, to say, you know, not just that I'll be here today, but I'll be here next week and next month and next year. Um, so one of the, you know, I think one of the frustrations that you might encounter from the community is that you show up and, you know, you demonstrate, um, you know, you demonstrate some security research or a technique or something like that, and then nothing happens. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you don't want to, um, you don't ever want to be in the situation of, of inviting somebody to uh, collaborate with you, and then they, they walk away feeling like they were just sort of put on display and trotted out for, for something, you know, mm -hmm. you want to really make them meaningful partners in uh, in your objectives. Um, and aside from executive support, I think that the other, the other thing that, that Bo said was, um, or that you two were just saying, uh, was that they came to you. Mm -hmm. And I Am the Cavalry was the one that approached 
FDA and was sort mm -hmm. of like, I want to learn about your world and, and all of that. So it's great to have an open door uh, and the open door is necessary, but from the researcher perspective, um, you do have to be somewhat assertive and you have to recognize that diplomacy is required and that, you know, as I said earlier, the friendship will be productive, but it might get off to a rocky start. And that has been my experience at a number of government agencies um, where even, you know, even from a government affairs perspective, it is sometimes hard to get over that initial reluctance and mutual distrust. So, so because we, our experiences have been such positive experiences, we socialize those uh, when we speak to other government entities mm -hmm. or when we do briefings and uh, we uh, you know, s expand upon how important that is to our ecosystem so that it is conveyed in congressional briefings. It's conveyed at the White House when you know, various roundtables are put together and I'll say, wait, you're missing a stakeholder group here. They're not on the list. Where's our researchers? Where's our security researchers? And um, initially, the reaction I got from some of our colleagues is, oh, you mean the biomedical researchers? And I'm like, no, 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 not, not talking about your classic you know, biomedical researchers. I'm talking about the researchers who provide great input in terms of our understanding what the security vulnerabilities and concerns are. So it's, it's socializing that, and then people become acclimated and understand the importance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'll say um, uh, one last thing, and then we'll have time for one more question, and that'll be it. Um, in terms of replicating this, uh, we've seen that uh, NHTSA published their 2016 priorities for uh, proactive safety, I believe it was, and one of their four pillars was to engage in the security community more, and there was at the very bottom uh, a commitment to collaboration signed by, I think it was 17 manufacturers, NHTSA and the DOT. So I take that as a good overture that um, we can start to see progress in other areas. Obviously, uh, Alan has started the discussion within the Department of Commerce uh, and more broadly within uh, the industry of what is the right way to go on some of these uh, cybersecurity issues specifically reaching out to and engaging the security research community. So I think it's the start of something really good, uh, and I hope that we can keep it going um, in whatever fashion that is. Uh, and yes, uh, last final question. Um, hopefully it's a short one, and then we'll break for uh, our reception. Um, Christina Anderson, AWPS News. Um, so I know of, of one large foundation that's doing a multinational trial for some medications. What they do is they set up the collection, the data collection model, and then they go out to these different countries and the pharmaceutical companies in those countries and they ask, are you interested in a trial? And if, they're, if the proposed medications qualify, then, uh, then they're accepted and enrolled. And the data is collected in this one giant database. So I'm wondering in that, what are the vulnerabilities and how do you address them when the intellectual property questions and a lot of the other concerns might be multinational. And um, so who do you work with in that? Is that something, I know they're working with the FDA here and in one other market uh, with regard to US pharmaceuticals that are manufactured here and in the other market. But so I'm wondering, but there have to be a lot of other concerns and now there are also uh, US intellectual property concerns that are in that system. So. 
do you reach out to each of the individual nations, or is it is there some other mechanism? So that Thank doesn't you. sound like a short answer, I'm but I'll, I'll I'll take a stab at a, a quick answer. <laughs> um, the FDA has corresponding agencies in different governments around the world. Um, obviously, trying to coordinate among everyone is going to be uh, a little bit of, of chaos. Trying to match up different regulatory regimes and uh, trying to satisfy everyone. Uh, but I think if you kind of start with um, you know a solid foundation of where your technology and your security are for uh, data protection, um, and you build on it some of the uh, requirements that you might have from the FDA or other organizations, uh, then you'll probably be off to a solid footing. Um, I don't know enough about the specific situation or the regulations of different countries, uh, but uh, you know what we tend to see in, in uh, cybersecurity, um, especially on what this sounds like, which is more the corporate data side, intellectual property, uh, data theft, uh, problems. Um, having a really good solid foundational level of uh, security from your supply chain to the way that you procure things um, to the, uh, the choices that you make to the way you operationalize that and then protect it, uh, that's always a good foundation that um, upon that you can put any specific protections that might be required at a policy level or a technical level. Any other thoughts? Not really. There's nothing yeah. I can add to that other than just simply say that there are other parts of not only uh, our agency, but at, within HHS and in the relationships that are formed with outside U.S. Uh, regulatory agencies and health agencies uh, in order to be able to have that kind of global interaction. So there are um, uh, efforts that are underway. I really can't speak to the specifics of those. It's out outside of my purview. All right, well, uh, thank you all very much for coming to this Cyber Risk Wednesday, uh, and we hope to see you next month, uh, same place, different time. Thank you. Uh, and if you do have further questions, we'll be sticking around for